Whether you're wearing a suit or sweats, you spend almost 24 hours a day in your underwear. But instead of making a statement like, say, Superman's tights under his everyday clothes, your underwear is probably boring. Well, MeUndies is here to change that. Every pair of MeUndies is made from sustainably sourced modal, a fabric that's twice as soft as cotton. Twice as soft as cotton? Is that even real? How can that be? It's true. Nothing can describe the fit and feel of MeUndies, but once you try them on, you'll understand why they're called the world's most comfortable underwear. And if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they're free. No questions asked. MeUndies has dozens of styles and limited edition prints to help you make a statement with your underwear, whether anyone can see them or not. Shout out to Clark Kent. Shipping is free in U.S. and Canada, and you can save up to $8 a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. Get the subscription or a single pair, but get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com BS. That's MeUndies.com BS for 20% off your first order. MeUndies.com BS. Be Superman. Yeah. Clear enough for you. All right. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Bill Simmons Podcast, and this is The Watch Takeover. My name is Chris Ryan, and I am an editor for TheRinger.com, and joining me on the other line, he just released an album at midnight, it's Andy Greenwald! Title exclusive, buddy. Feels good. Yeah, we are we are replacing the Friday Rolling crew here today on the Bill Simmons Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan, my friend Andy Greenwald is on the other line. Uh, in case you don't know, we host a show called The Watch, which is on the Channel 33 podcast feed. It's usually about television and other pop culture matters. Uh, you can subscribe to The Watch by subscribing to Channel 33 on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. I also highly recommend that you go to the ringer.com and enter your email to sign up for our newsletter, which should be starting very soon in mid-March. And we'll be hitting you up about three times a week with all sorts of uh, good stuff in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Ringer, and on Instagram, at Ringer, and on Facebook, The Ringer. Uh, Andy, what's up, man? It's Friday. We don't do Friday rolling. We usually do a Friday re-up, and uh, we're here to introduce... T- t- today, we're going to talk about something pretty exciting yeah. for us, right? We're going to talk about Deflategate. Some personal news. Is that right? <laughs> no. Uh, we are here to talk. We're going to introduce a new concept for our podcast, The Watch, that we're going to try and keep going over the course of this this year. Now, this is not going to be an unfamiliar idea if you were a Grantland reader or a Grantland listener. Sometimes we would bring up something called the championship belt. I think we did it for point guards. I think we've done it for action stars, if I'm, if I'm correct. The idea of the championship belt is that there is a, uh, what is it, a transitive kind of uh idea it's like <laughs> it's been a while since i don't was make in me talk about math man <laughs> um <laughs> the idea that basically at any given time something is the is the best or the dominant kind of uh entity in whatever field you're talking about and in television we're gonna do the television show championship belt and when we feel like something has won or uh unseated the holder uh, we will we will talk about it. And Andy, let's talk a little bit about what this idea means because I think for television, it's a very specific uh, criteria we're talking about. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting the the, the time frame we're going to look at here, right? Because basically, when um, Bill and other people did the, the the Action Star Championship belt, it was a belt that you held until it was taken from you, yeah. right? So like Van Dam had it until I actually have no idea who took it from Van Dam. I wouldn't even want to try, but. The point being, it lasted for a long period of time. I think the way to think about it for TV is let's look at the year and let's break it up into quadrants. There are four seasons in the actual year for people who go outside and experience weather, and there are four seasons for people who watch television, too. I wouldn't know, dog. I'm just out here with my vitamin D drip. (laughs) That's right. 
<laughs> or like me having to watch so much TV, I actually have no idea what season it is outside. Um, so it's worth noting that we're going to think of it as who's holding the belt for each season of the year, right? Mm-hmm. And the other reason why that's relevant is because up until relatively recently, TV was pretty much about the fall and maybe the spring. Yeah. All the new shows came out in the fall. Everyone paid attention to them, sorted the wheat from the chaff, shall we say. I'm using a lot of metaphors from like outdoorsy things for someone who has already established that he never leaves the house. But that was it. And then maybe in the spring, there would be a couple new shows. And in the summer, there would just be like hot garbage, hot garbage piped directly into your TV box. Right. Obviously, those days are long, long gone. And the fall almost feels like an afterthought when the networks, you know, back up the truck and dump unnecessary remakes of the Muppets on us. Everything else happens at the other times of the year. And in fact, I would say that the season we're just coming out of, the season that starts in January, is in many ways the busiest now. And uh, Chris and I, you and I were talking before about how it's actually getting even more micro-targeted, where the services like Amazon and Netflix have figured out that the best time for them to dump their new shows is on Thanksgiving weekend or Christmas weekend yeah, or New Year's. The making because of that's murderer. when people are move yeah that's when people are trapped with their families that they don't want to talk about uh, talk to so they watch tv instead the what you're talking about with this idea that the fall is 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 high tv like the high season for tv you know we're talking about that like it's you know they used to have model t fords and you'd have to crank (laughs) them real hard to get them up the hill we're we're in the tesla age now man like this is not only is there just uh no no respect for 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 the seasons as as the wizard Gandalf made them, but there's no respect for time. I mean, like whether or not we're talking about House of Cards, which is coming back this weekend, or Love that's already on Netflix, or all these you know Marvel shows that are on Netflix, Amazon's Gold Rush that they've got going, Hulu putting on show after show. I think The Path, the Jason uh, Kanem show is coming soon. Correct. Um, all these shows that are either binge worthy, bingeable. Plus, you've got. Uh, upstart networks from WGN and on A&E looking to put like more and more original scripted content on the air. It's incredibly difficult to navigate this. And one of the things that we try to do with the podcast, obviously, is like pick and choose what these things, you know, the best of the best are for you to be checking out. Uh, currently, Andy, as this, we, w- we would describe this, I think, as uh, the calm before the thrones, this period, right? I, I think that's right. I think that there is... The one thing that is absolutely certain as we introduce this completely subjective and utterly fictional concept is that spring is on lock. The spring season is owned by Game of Thrones. And in fact, it's not just Game of Thrones. The Sunday nights on HBO, Game of Thrones into Veep and Silicon Valley, that's probably pound for pound the best night of TV that there exists currently in 2016. And uh, the reason we say Game of Thrones wins, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what's coming with Thrones soon, in this, in fact, in this show, we're going to talk about it. But um, the reason Thrones wins is because it hits all the points that we consider relevant to hold the belt. It's not just the massive popularity, which, by the way, it certainly has. It's the fact that it is the most culturally engaged and electric show that we have on TV. I've liked to, in fact, I've often called it the last consensus show because it's the sort of show that feels like if you're not watching it, you're missing out. Yeah. And not only um, do you have to watch it, you have to watch it Sunday nights or else you basically have to become a Luddite and cannot go online for the next week. You have to be a part of the conversation. You have to watch it. And for both of us, this is a little bit self-serving because obviously we record a podcast where we have conversations about TV. We want there to be conversation drivers out there. But I think it's more than that. I think the thing that separates TV from the other mediums and the thing that I've always really loved about it 
is that sort of third rail where it's the people make the art, the people watch the art, but then we kind of hold it aloft in our arms and talk about it throughout the week. It feels, um, you know, it's exciting, it's engaging. And we miss that a little bit as we've gone from this consensus era of TV um, into this just wild, wild west of streaming and a thousand choices at any moment. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that we've been talking about monitoring for the last year or two, really, is the way in which television watching habits have impacted the actual production of television, right? That the idea that people want something, they need a reason to tune in live. And if you're if you're going to make a show these days and we see this with, um, uh, you know, with with the success of the Shonda shows and with the wild success of Game of Thrones and Walking Dead, those are really the shows that you feel like if if you're a fan of them, if you're not watching that live, you will be you will miss out, you know, and then there are other shows which kind of um, eskew that. And you, you, you. I have, I have a, you know, a sober respect for something like, say, Better Call Saul, which is very good and very well done, but is almost feels like it is like a piece of '70s cinema compared to the way a lot of what we watch now is. And I feel like you could just accumulate three Sauls and watch them on a Sunday and not feel like you had missed out on the, you know, the the latest Sandpiper newsletter. But whereas with Thrones and, and Walking Dead and with and with a lot of the Shonda shows, you feel like there is – they used to say there has to be three jokes per minute on an NBC sitcom on a Thursday or whatever. There has to be three jokes per page. There needs to be three twists per episode. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about those shows, the Shondaland shows on ABC, uh, Walking Dead, Game of Thrones as being the paradigm for what TV should be just in terms of audience engagement. But – it's actually, they're kind of the Model T's in the Tesla analogy you used before. Because where we're headed the re- is towards the streaming future. And Netflix and Amazon in particular, they don't care about what we're talking about. Yeah. They want to be talked, they want their shows to be in the conversation. There's no doubt. But they also don't think it matters. They think it's yesterday's currency, basically. What, value, what has value to them is building up this unbeatable library to keep people subscribing, to keep yeah. people discovering. They actually don't care if we watch the entire season of Love today as opposed to when it dropped a month ago, or if we watch it in a year or two years. That's fine. I think that's probably great for the people making the shows in the sense that they know that there will be an, an audience will find them. It's not like going to disappear into the ether. It's not going to go out of print on DVD or whatever. But it is lacking that thing that we really enjoy about TV. And I actually, I've heard, you know, anecdotally, I've heard this too from people who've had shows on the streaming services. They feel kind of lonely too. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like they're, they're, it's like they're, they're, their album dropped and nobody knows, nobody's listening to it at the same time. I'm going to make know, a prediction. That, that's sort of a bummer. You know what? Within the next couple of years, some enterprising, you know, and I know that some websites are already doing basically like TV guide style apps for streaming television but once they have enough of a library i could see amazon and netflix basically sponsoring their own content sites to talk about their own shows i mean why not right just to keep it alive yeah yeah well because i was looking i was watching on in the on the atlantic today uh they are doing basically a live binge blog of house of cards and that's often been one of the issues with those netflix shows is that like how do you kind of do an episodic check-in of it when people are either watching 10 hours in a row or 10 hours over the course of 10 months and they're just kind of like screw it we're going all in we're going to watch it and we're going to write about it as we watch it there's going to come a time where like i think that the problem with with a lot of these a a lot of 
editorial sites don't really know how to engage with some of those shows in a proper way. I think you're going to actually see a time when like Netflix is like, cool, we'll do it for you. They definitely believe in doing it for you. There's no question about that. <laughs> House of Cards is an interesting example because um, when House of Cards debuted three years ago, and that's crazy to, to imagine that it, that was already three years ago, I would say that in the period it debuted, and I don't have the date in front of me, but it had the belt. When House of Cards debuted as Netflix's first first um, you know big-ticket scripted show, all eyes were on it. People were racing through it. It was incredibly addictive. February exciting, 1st, 2013. Okay, so it felt momentous. You know, it's it it felt like it was. Um, well, I'm trying to you know I'm trying to reverse engineer this point because I think well, I don't no, I think mean, we're alone was... in thinking now. We realize that House of Cards actually hasn't added up to anything. Well, yeah, what it was was incredibly snackable. It was not a satisfying meal. But when it debuted, it felt like one. Now, three years later, there isn't the same excitement of this being dumped onto our servers. Now, many people will watch it, but I think. I think actually the way that it has been serviced to us has affected the way we've perceived it. And I think that's in a negative way. Do you think that part of what you think about that? So when House of Cards came on February 2013, the pilot's directed by David Fincher. It's got Kevin Spacey, Robin Wright, and Kate Mara in it. It looks like a billion dollars. It's about something very compelling and told in a kind of quasi-trashy way, but, you know, relatively intelligently. And it just, you can't overstate it. David Fincher directed a piece of television and now I think that when we saw it in 2013 and it's it, all the episodes are available at once, all this, all this, everything about it felt progressive in some ways, even though it was in some ways a very traditional show. It was basically like Knott's Landing yeah. or Dallas set in the White House. Now it just feels like television, right? And now, yeah. now it's just like another season of House of Cards. Yeah, it's available all at once. It, yeah, Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey are still on it. It still looks like David Fincher. Joel Kinnaman's on this season. But basically, it's House of Cards, and it's just another season. There are certain ways in which television still can't break out of being television, no matter how much, say, a Soderbergh or a, or a Fincher might try to tweak it a little bit. Well, look at the freedoms afforded by something like Netflix, which basically will say, you can do whatever you want, and we'll fund it. Yeah. That's an amazing thing. But often, people don't know, quite know what to do with that freedom, and often that freedom leads to the same kind of sloth that that um, affected traditional TV. What I mean is House of Cards is example A and, and Netflix's historically better show, Orange is the New Black, is, is example B. Both felt gripping and engaging and exciting and new in different ways. Both now are settled in for the long haul. Yeah. They put on, you know, they, they, they're, they're, they're sitting back in their seat, putting on the cruise control and they're gone. And we've referred to it before as the Showtime problem, but I think it's fair to call it the Netflix problem too. Orange is the New Black just got renewed for what, three more years? She's in prison for 15 months? How exactly is this working? And the problem with a show like House of Cards, when you know now it's going to run four years, maybe it'll run five years, maybe six, seven years, the extremity of the first two seasons, it's, it just becomes A, implausible, but B, you have to top it. And it, when you have to top a sitting congressman murdering someone else, you're kind of, you're, you're kind, of uh, kind of painting yourself into a corner there. Before we get too esoteric, I did want to say just, and then we're going to start actually talking about who holds the belt. We wanted to make it clear that we want to try to be as critically minded as we do this and a little bit populist minded. Mm-hmm. What that means is the show does have to have some uh, popular oomph behind it. It can't just be something we love. So you and I, big fans of things like Top of the Lake, The Honorable Woman. Uh, we love a British spy miniseries like yeah. London Spy on BBC America. Even though we spent a lot of time on our podcast talking about it, at no point did these shows hold the belt. It's just not possible, right? So 
think instead, obviously, Game of Thrones, we said House of Cards three years ago. You know, four years ago, um, Breaking Bad would have certainly had it and been holding it higher than many shows had held it before. Um, you know, Mad Men probably had it going into its last season. I would say there have been times, I don't know whether, I don't know if we could pull one out of thin air here, but there were probably times when a comedy had it too, right? Um, I think Louis had it at at certain times, right? I think think Louis could have had it. Because Louis basically had this, that that House of Cards moment where all of a sudden you felt like the the possibilities of televised scripted comedy were endless. And I think it... it, it, And because of that, everyone was talking about it. Sure. Inside the industry and outside of it. Exactly. So, should we run down the contenders? For yeah. Before we get to the con- moment, let, before we get to the contenders, let's just get to a quick word from our sponsor. Your to-do list can seem a little out of control. So much to do, so little time. But there's one thing you can check off your to-do list: going to the post office. Thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your own computer and printer. Then just hand it to your mail carrier. You'll never waste valuable time going to the post office again. Sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code BS for this special offer. A four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in BS. Stamps.com, type in BS. You'll be glad you did. Before we move on, guys, we just want to talk about uh, the other sponsor for the Bill Simmons Podcast, and that's Squarespace. Building a website can be tough, and even if you know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well can be a time-consuming affair. Whether it's for a business site, a portfolio, a restaurant, or whatever else, in this day and age, you probably need one anyway. Well, lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. Squarespace provides simple, powerful, and beautiful websites that look professionally designed regardless of skill level, with no coding required. Not only does Squarespace provide you with intuitive and easy-to-use tools to create your website, Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology, powering your site to ensure security and stability. And you know you can trust Squarespace for your website needs when millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust them too. Seriously, you can't beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website. So what are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up with Squarespace, make sure you use the promo code BS to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Bill Simmons Podcast. We thank Squarespace for their support of the Bill Simmons Podcast. Okay, Andy, so we're talking about who holds the championship belt now. Should we talk about some of the contenders before we actually give the award out here? I think we should. Okay. Uh, and this can actually serve as something of like a midseason report card for a lot of these shows. Just so we do a little bit of a check-in here, but we're going to work our way up to the to the belt holder. Now, uh, currently right now on the, the big sort of three of the big uh, premium networks, you've got Vinyl on HBO and Billions on Showtime. Um, kind of a men, both men behaving badly shows, both difficult genius shows. So very familiar for people who have been watching prestige television, quote unquote, for the last four or five years. Uh, I think that they're both coming into their own as with each episode. But tell me where you're at with vinyl right now, because I know that that's one that we've been kicking around a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you you made this point the other week on the watch, and I I appreciated it, but I don't think I completely bought into it. But now I, I I'm starting to. I think that the thing about vinyl and billions is that both suggest a cleverness and a nimbleness in the creation of them or in the creator's mindset and the storytelling that isn't quite there in the show yet. And I wonder if that is the collision of people who want to do something new, who are a little bit looking at things a little bit sideways in a way that's fun, have a sense of self-awareness of everything that's happened in TV before them and, you know, not wanting to, to, to sort of hammer those same beats. 
but sort of for whatever reason, whether it's um, network interference or notes or their own decision-making process, have sort of sidled into the straitjackets of macho dudes outmaneuvering each other in the same old ways. Yeah. You know, there, there are sparks in both of these shows. And for me, this third episode of Vinyl was the first time that I kind of saw it for myself. I enjoyed this episode. I thought this was the first, you know, the, 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 the second hour of the show. And by that, I mean the second episode because the first episode was, I believe, nine, nine and a half hours long. I, I think the I'm first not, episode is actually still going if you, if you have like HBO premium <laughs> and you can just watch the, the 47 hour version of Martin Scorsese's vinyl. <laughs> It's just still running. Like Richie it's just Finestra is still in his cut. Cadillac doing cocaine, and there are still people running past No, him. actually, it, at this point, the camera has done a complete 180 on Thelma Schoonmacher with her head just, like, turned up at the ceiling, <laughs> having just snorted up the biggest, thickest line of the devil's dandruff you've ever seen. Um, that yeah, Yoakum. look, this was more... This was a more... I <laughs> Tune into the watch for deep editor jokes. That's just kind of what we do. Um, this was a lot more fun, this episode. You know, yeah. it, it, we, 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 I think last week on our show on The Watch and The Re-Up, we went through all these other scenarios that we would have enjoyed more for a music business set show. And I think one of the reasons we wanted to do that is because in, the, in our mind, some of these scenes that we were talking about, whether they were like Athens, Georgia in 1980 or The Clash playing in New York in 1981 or, or like uh, Dungeon Family and Organized Noise starting out in, in Atlanta in 93, 94 is because they would have given us more of a sense of the the, the creative along with the corporate. And right. Vinyl is a very top-down show, which is really to say that it focuses on the business people. And the business people are, I think even the business people would admit, are the least interesting part of the record business. Right, right. right. This episode gave us a little bit more of the creative spark as to why these people care so much and why we might want to care so much. Um, there was the long-running bee joke with Alice Cooper, which was f fine. I mean, that was fun. That felt like the kind of anecdote that you would hear about in a uh, rock book written, you know, in the 80s about the 70s. And that was perfectly enjoyable. And similarly, the the way that the Nasty Bits signing thing happened up to that show, that was just really well shot. You know, yeah. that it felt fun. And when the music kicked in, you kind of got into it. That and, was Mark, and, and that was Mark Romanek, right? I think so, yeah. And uh, and my man Jonathan Tropper, who created uh, co-created Banshee on Cinemax, co-wrote this episode, too. Oh. I didn't even know he was involved in it. But um, it's funny the way fun is often a bad word in serious drama rooms. And I've heard anecdotally that even in some broadcast networks, they like to stamp out anything that might be fun or funny because they think their you know procedurals are all about you know naval crimes and there's nothing to laugh about there. But when you're talking about worlds as absurd as rock and roll in the 70s or um, hedge funds in the 2010s. I was just going to say that I think Billions is, has become a fun show too. And that, that that's like a really big... If that had been a miserly show where Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis were battling for the soul of New York City and it was basically replaying 2008 financial crisis in some... Uh, in some way, I don't think it would have really worked. I just think that we've kind of had those lessons taught to us a couple of times in the Big Short and Margin Call and a couple of other things. I, I don't want to like. I'm not laughing about financial malfeasance. I'm laughing at these people and th these guys are hamming yeah. it up. I mean, the boar's head is being sliced so thick. I might even send it back <laughs> to my to my butcher. And and so Chuck Rhodes versus uh, versus Bobby Axe Axelrod with a little, little little sprinkling of wags on the top is a really nice Sunday 
palate cleanser. Whatever sexual deviancy they throw in is always welcome. <laughs> and uh, I love to see Terry Kinney, my man from Oz, getting a little bit of work. He's he's great. I, I think he's, you're hit, hit the hit it right on the head. What happens to these shows is that they sometimes start out as prestige drama, and then they're like, uh, maybe we're comedy, you know. And it's not comedy, comedy like yeah. straight up, but it's like, you know what? I think if we're gonna go for three, four seasons, it's important that a couple of times an episode people laugh, and that it doesn't feel like a slow mo version of 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 them getting their their four hundred one ks dissolved. You, you know who I'd like to see laugh a little bit? It's Olivia Wilde. Olivia Wilde had her Ali G just started improving next to me face throughout episode she three said, of Vinyl. Uh, she said she she actually did come out and say that she was quite a fan of that bit by uh, by SBC. I know, but I, I, you know, I don't believe anything. I believe, I, I, you know what I watch TV with, Chris? My eyes, first and foremost. With Same your heart? thing that I eat do you with. Watch first. it with your heart. My eyes, <laughs> and and I, I, my eyes didn't lie about the, the sort of like you know. I, I haven't seen a proof of life look on a face on TV like that since well, since Tuesday with Chris Christie. But you know, <laughs> I think I know what I saw. Yeah. The point being here. Vinyl and Billions do not have the belt, despite possibly building themselves into being stronger contenders. I, I'll say that I think Vinyl doesn't, just simply because it, for all the fun that it's suggesting, it is still a deeply backwards-looking show. And I don't say that just because it's a period piece. It does seem to yearn for both an era in our life and an era on television where we kind of wanted to see men behaving badly and clubbing each other with ideas or checkbooks or just simply their fists. So I, it does not feel of the moment, and the ratings reflect that. Yeah, and I have one one last note on vinyl, and we can get to this some other time, but I just want to put it out there. A lot of these other difficult men shows that we're talking about, whether it's Breaking Bad or Mad Men, are at least within the universe of the show, the, pers- the protagonist is very good at what they do. And I don't mm-hmm. know that Richie Finestra is. Like, I think, and I don't know that the show necessarily thinks he is either, or I think they're still trying to decide. He says, I have a golden ear and silver tongue and brass balls, but I don't, he, the artists that he has signed are such like a weird collection of like Donny Eisman in Black Oak, Arkansas, and he's screwed over other artists, and he's sort of like gra- grasping at straws here at this point in the show. And that might actually be a good thing for this show, that they have a protagonist who is not actually yes. a genius. Listen, I think you're really onto something here, but I think that they are afraid to go there. And yeah. I think it's a problem that we've seen with Homeland, too. Yeah. The, the yeah, takeaway yeah. from from all 11 seasons of Homeland, <laughs> I could be rounding up or down, <laughs> is that Carrie Matheson is terrible at her job, right? Yeah. She has missed every sign. She's behaved terribly. And yet the show cannot commit to her being the problem with it. And I don't mean writing her off of the show. I mean admitting that she keeps screwing up instead of letting everyone fall in love with her. I think that's not just endemic to that to Homeland. I think that's endemic to dramas on TV in general. Yeah. That we aren't quite at the point, unless it's a show like Baskets, which, by the way, you really should check out. Uh, <laughs> we're not ready for a, the, the main character to be, quote-unquote, a loser. Um, the other problem with vinyl in this is that we're if you... As soon as you start to introduce new bands or new ideas, if you want to make him really good at his job, he has to discover something incredible, right? Right. But then you enter the uncanny valley that bedevils all music shows, which is you have to create something that is plausible yeah, as this being is, incredible. Yeah, this is the that thing you do problem. Yeah. you have to, If you make a movie about the greatest song ever recorded, you better get the greatest song ever recorded. And as soon as someone's like, it's not that great the whole movie crumbles. Yeah, this is so they're so kind the, of in trouble with that. It's the same problem that Studio 60 has where they have to write the sketches and Bill likes to go back to <laughs> yeah. this over and over and over again where like Sorkin was like 
I'm not just going to cut away when they're going to do the sketch. I'm actually going to say, isn't Sarah Paulson as this nun hilarious? I don't know. That might be American Horror Story. I'm not sure. Might be both. It's but, both. But the same thing for that thing you do, where they actually did, whether you like the song or not, you acknowledge that it sounds like something that could have been a hit. But the, the nasty bits, you're just like, oh, okay. And I hope that they are not that good. I hope that this is a... A not a genius finding not a good band and putting all going all in on it, and that maybe then Juno Temple takes the show over. Can I? God, I wish. Can I just say, um, I I know Ryan Murphy doesn't listen to our show, but in the off chance he listens to Bill's show, can I just suggest for season eight American Horror Story colon Studio sixty on the Sunset Strip? Because you've already got Sarah Paulson in the fold. I think the idea of it, like a choir of gimps doing a Gilbert and Sullivan Maybe Zachary comedy number. Quinto can play conjoined twins that are the head writers. Right, exactly. Oh, that, see, now we're talking, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and Evan Peter, oh, I thought the conjoined twins, but one of them was in Iraq and the other one is doing a comedy show. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of possibilities here. Or here's actually my version of it. Here's my okay. real pitch, okay? It's called, it's on FX, it's on Wednesdays, it's called Produced by Ryan Murphy. Starring Sarah Paulson. It's called American Horror Story, colon, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and they just show Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. I mean, if we they want things to get it. pushed, if we want to really get progressive with television, I, don't, I can't imagine. <laughs> Let's you. just start showing okay, shows so, with different titles. Well, I feel like that was, or, yeah, it's arguable. Would you characterize Studio 60 as an American Horror Story or an American Crime Story? Either way, FX has options, but boy, that show is bad. Okay, let's move on. Neither of those shows get the belt. Um... Better Call Saul, another contender here? I want it to be. If it's called Better Called Mike, I think it would be. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a little more sour on Better Call Saul in year two. You said to me, I asked you a couple weeks ago when you had seen the first episode and I hadn't, and I said, what do you think of Better Call Saul? And you said they have walked back a lot of the character work that they did, where basically they had started from zero again with these characters, where... It, there had been an arc for a bunch of them. They got to the end of that arc, and then they were like, let's just sort of like, let's sort of backpedal a little bit and put put Jimmy in the same situation, put Ray Seahorn's uh, character in the same situation, put Mike in the same situation. I, I just feel like there's just a little bit of tw- treading water with this show right now. We've talked about how this show has this weird relationship to another show. It's unlike anything... I think we've seen in this way. I mean, I know there's been spinoffs before, but never one that was so obviously within touching distance of the mothership. Look at you, by the way. You're like the Megyn Kelly of this podcast. You're you're <laughs> hanging me with my own words. <laughs> Unbelievable. I want to know how, well, what does it take to get a degree from Greenwald University? <laughs> God, can you imagine? I feel like the extra credit alone would be, look, um, I, I absolutely felt that way about the season premiere. I thought the season premiere, Better Call Saul, uh, second season, was a little bit strange um, step backwards because it, it, you know, and we said this on the watch that it actually, if you, if you, if we, the audience, takes a step backward, it's actually kind of admirable in the way that all of these Vince Gilligan produced shows are admirable in that they built in the option, they they built a a uh, they built a car that basically could run on two speeds and. They, you know, they reached the end of the first season and they basically had a turbo button where if they needed to get to Omaha, they needed to get to Saul quickly, they could have. They realized a lot was working and they didn't need to. So they hit the, so they just downshifted basically yeah. and started to work with the story they'd built in season one. Um, 
I will say that after having watched the third episode, um, you know, which I was already inclined to like because it started right in that sweet spot of uh, of elder care and early bird specials that I really moved. I do, me I do like it watcher. where you get a nice uh, any scene on a bus with a bunch of senior citizens is really you just feel the electricity running through you. <laughs> but the thing that I'm noticing and that I really appreciate is that. What they're playing with now, in a very interesting way, is they are playing with the stakes that they introduced in season one, but they're playing with them in a very Breaking Bad, um, adrenalized way. And uh, I saw our our pal Alan Sepinwall was mentioning this on Twitter, so I should give him credit first and foremost about this. The tension that already exists in Jimmy and Kim's relationship, which sort of came out of nowhere, but it kind of didn't because it was building since the pilot but they slow pitched it so well to actually becoming a romance that now as we see the cracks in it, as she starts to see who he is and, you know, this guy who's been thirsty his whole life and suddenly has, you know, giant Nalgene waters, <laughs> Nalgene bottles of, of free water coming to him all the time. And he wants all of it. The idea that he's going to betray her in a small way before he betrays the constitution in a million ways <laughs> is very moving and affecting. Yeah. You know, it's, if you think about what made Breaking Bad good, it wasn't the way it shattered plates the way it did at the end of the season, at the end of the series. It was the way that beautiful China got so many hairline fractures and cracks yes. leading up to it. And, and that's the same storytelling they're doing. And what's interesting, the, the, but, com- the comparison is interesting because a lot of people had a lot hard time getting into Breaking Bad in the beginning because they were like, what is this? No one remembers that. Yeah. They were like, is this a, is this a dark comedy about a guy with cancer? Uh, is this guy gonna become a crime lord who's this jesse guy who keeps screaming bitch this show seems very slow there's only five episodes i think it's worth noting i think it's worth and obviously the writer strike affected the first two seasons of breaking bad but i think it but i think it's worth noting that i don't know had we had a podcast back then which boy great job by us because i don't know if podcasts existed but um i don't think breaking bad would have had the belt until the the gus season yeah you know, I, I think that it was a slow build, and then once it hit that maybe, point, maybe Jane was Jane before or after Gus. Jane was season two. Yeah, and I think and, I think that Jane stuff's incredible. I do too. I've been hearing in retrospect some people are sour about that. Some people are out on that season, um, which I don't, I don't, I don't buy. I feel like that was the season when they started to play with things. You know, one of the things we ascribe to Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, who co-created um, Better Call Saul, but worked throughout worked on every season of breaking bad with with vince gilligan is we we think about um we credit them with this sort of long-term thinking that isn't often found in tv and i think yeah they were kind of making it up as they went along too but season two when they had the the stuffed animal in the beginning in the pool and then we saw that it was from the plane crash at the end that was when they started to really experiment with that and really act like they knew what they were doing even when they didn't but look we're off track i really like the show but it doesn't have the belt i agree with you it doesn't have the belt because Look, it's it's about it's about Michael McKean in the desert and old people and buses. You know, it, that's just kind of what it's about right now. It's about Mike with pimento cheese sandwiches doing all nighters in an old Chrysler. Like, I love what it's about, but we have to admit that it is only allowed to be about those things because yeah. it is Breaking Bad adjacent, and not and not when the belt holder is on the air right now. You can't you can't rock yeah, with it. Let's get to it. Not when Courtney B. Vance is is patrolling this earth like a like a great beautiful like acting beast what a what a, what an incredible episode of the people versus oj simpson we just saw this is the championship belt holder right now this is the best show on tv right now and here's and here's why because it hits all of our points it's pure pleasure to watch the show in the way that i can't wait to watch it um 
this episode of vinyl we're talking about that i liked i fired it up on the old uh the old hbo go or whatever and at the bottom of the screen it said one hour five minutes there's a little deflation right I don't look at this. I don't look how long these these OJ episodes are. I wish they were twice as long. Um, it's totally fun. It's incredibly smart. It's incredibly well made. But I also think that it is really pushing some conversations in a way that other TV isn't at the moment, and other TV should. And in fact, it might even be pushing um, reality. Because I don't know if you saw today that uh, Newsbreak they may have found the murder weapon at the Rockingham uh, property in Brentwood. What are you, Did you telling see me that OJ might have done it? Look, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to like step out of line here. I know what? that we don't break news on our podcast. I don't want to do it on Bill's, but it's possible that he might not be as squeaky clean as his the last twenty years of his life has suggested. You bring up a good point. This is the one argument against uh, the wonderful arguers of OJ that I would like to bring up. Is uh, we've talked about this a little bit. We are now in the court case, right? We have gone through preliminary hearings. We've made opening statements. And uh, co-prosecutor Bill Hodgman has a heart attack in the courtroom in, during the prelim, so it, which opens the door of dramatic doors kicked open for Christopher Darden to be made co- co-prosecutor of the case. That did not happen. Well, it did not happen like that. He, right. Bill Hodgman did have a cardiac episode. Sure. But it was in judges' chambers the next day. Uh but that was, I would agree with you, that was the first, like, that is really over-dramatizing something. Yeah, Some of the and, other and there's, details. A, there's an implicit connection from Cochran's way of, I know that we'll get in trouble for doing this, but you're going to take the fall for this to his to his assistant lawyer, like his, I don't know what assistant lawyers are called, the co-worker, you know, and he's like, yeah, you're just going to fall on your sword for this one for OJ. They do it, and it so enrages Bill Hodgman that he's has this this attack uh, and people have been p- picking on like little and big details that the show is starting to embellish here and there. Um, that almost it's it's I uh, maybe even a testament to how good that episode was is that that's much lower on the totem pole of things I want to talk about when it comes to the show because I think that for as much as television is a writer's medium, uh, I think shows are made or broken on their performances, and um, there's a lot of ham hammy performances there's a lot of funny performances in this show we've talked about how funny it is that people who are celebrities at the time of the actual oj trial are being brought yep. sort of to star like schwimmer and travolta but um courtney b vance is a guy who has never really had um a, at least on television an opportunity to play a role like this and you know he has a lot of very big part big lines big big scenes in this in this uh episode my favorite is actually watching him run the meeting where Bob Shapiro is is mad that at F. Lee Bailey and he's coming in and he's he sort of refuses he drives all the way over to the office and refuses mm-hmm. to go in because F. Lee Bailey and he sits down and calls him Judas and there's just a quick second where Courtney B. Vance as Johnny Cochran just runs the meeting and I think he's like passing out folders and he's sort of delegating tasks to people and that is just a very very economical way of showing. What a great lawyer Johnny Cochran was outside of the courtroom, and what an incredible manager! And incre- these are little things that maybe the audience doesn't even recognize it, but they it brings an authenticity to the proceedings. That when you go big in this show, there is a baseline of that's Barry Sheck talking about DNA evidence at the end of a table. Like I see the playing field here, and and the way that they have sort of established Cochran as this chess master. 
not only in the courtroom, but outside of the courtroom, who's putting on performances and, and turning down the volume and turning up the volume at different times to manipulate people is amazing. And he is giving one of the best performances I've seen in a very long time on television. I completely agree. And I wanted to point out my favorite scene, which was also out of the courtroom. My favorite scene was in the bedroom when he's practicing his opening arguments in this silk bathrobe and his wife is laughing at him and helping him with stuff. And he's taking joy in it. And he's an alive person. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking of just the depth and the breadth of this performance to allow someone who was more or less a caricature in the public imagination, but was in fact a complicated, interesting human who had had, you know, had an enormous amount of experience and talent and skill um, I'm thinking about this just in terms of the performance that Courtney Vance is allowed to play here. You know, I went through, it was going through his IMDb. He's an actor who I've been aware of, I've known about. He's apparently, done, you know, he's done amazing work on stage that I don't think I've ever been lucky enough to see. He's good in everything he's ever been in. Yeah, he had but two big movie playing... roles at the beginning of his career in Hamburger Hill and in Hunt for October. Right. And he's great in both of those things. Right. But never really got the the big look, the the like, you are the, you're the cop, you're the, you're the, the lawyer, you're the doctor whatever and you think about i mean all the argument that's been going on about diversity um in on screen especially in movies that just happened from the oscars and you look at what courtney vance is doing with this part now that he's allowed to play a completely three-dimensional human being who is both um brilliant and conniving who is both um cynical and a true believer who is both funny and furious who is you know flirting with his wife and getting up in front of these cameras and delivering that incredible speech that he does to rebut Christopher Darden's yeah. uh, whole spiel about whether the N-word should be allowed in the courtroom. I mean, this is a thundering performance. And it's worth noting, first of all, Sterling Brown, who plays Christopher Harden, is incredible, too. And watching the two of them face off has been just an absolute thrill. Watching the show, it, it makes me, as a viewer hungry for more diversity on screen and not just in terms of racial diversity just in terms of human diversity and the types of roles that we get to see because when i'm watching this and there's that scene there are hundred scenes in this episode alone but the scene when uh darden after swallowing his tongue for much of the episode confronts marcia clark and says how it's going to be how he's going to come off if yeah. he um cross-examines mark Furman, and she says i know and he says no you don't yeah you're white and you see the level, and when I, there's a diversity, I keep saying that word, but it's not just skin color, it's of point of view. Yeah. Because Marsha Clark, up to this point, and I believe next week is a Marsha Clark-centered episode, has been presented, I think, fairly as a complicated, smart, well-meaning feminist woman who is doing her best in a very difficult circumstance. The idea of her being well-meaning and genuinely liking Chris Darden, wanting to work with him, thinking he is a smart, worthy person, but then the other reasons why he is absolutely there. And her... Her, her, um, in that moment, her, just her almost shutting him down, saying that she could speak for him, and him saying, "No, you can't." We never see that moment on TV. We never see that moment in courtrooms or when people of different races are working together. You know, it, and these are all stories that are out there to be told. The fact that it is a Ryan Murphy produced show about the O.J. Simpson trial that's giving us a chance to talk about them and see them. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I guess Dainu, it's great. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, know, um, you, you say that this one, this this show has the belt, and that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Hopefully, we'll return to this. You can follow it. Like, again, I said you could uh, subscribe to Channel 33, and you'll get the watch. Usually, we uh, go every Monday and Friday. The next week, we'll be going Tuesday. We'll be talking about House of Cards, uh, the new Kendrick Lamar album, and a bunch of other things. Uh, and probably about every two, three weeks, we'll talk about who has the championship belt right now or whenever it, it gets thrown into contention. 
yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about this. I think that what our podcast lacked was large, large bits of like personal clothing and also professional wrestling imagery. I feel like this is really going to help us just as podcast hosts and as friends. <laughs> I agree with you. All right, man. I'll talk to you Tuesday. We'll be back. Subscribe to Channel 33 on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please sign up for the Ringer newsletter at theringer.com. Follow us on Twitter at Ringer, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Bill, for letting us sublet the space. And great job, Baranski. Thanks again to Stamps.com for sponsoring the Bill Simmons podcast. You know, mailing and shipping, if they're a routine part of your business and you're making constant trips to the post office, that's a routine you need to change. There's a much more convenient way, and it's Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer. And then you just uh, slap that on the whatever you're mailing. You give it to your mail carrier. You sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code BS for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in BS. That's Stamps.com. Enter BS. We about this bitch. Anytime y'all want to see me again, rewind this track right here. Close your eyes. Picture me rolling.